Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm thrilled that you're with us today, and it's going to be a great, great show. I'm excited that this month, uh, due to it being Alzheimer's and caregiving, the national month of celebration for both of these, I have Sherry Snelling uh joining us. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Sherry in in a bit. But I always like to start out the show letting people know who Alzheimer's Speaks is and what we're about. Again, I'm Lori LeBay and I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. And basically, you know, I got into this industry because of my mother who has been suffering with memory loss for over 30 years. And um, in so many ways, it's been a blessing. And I am now all about connecting people to resources Sources and giving hope and trying to remove the fear that um, stagnates so many of us. Alzheimer's Speaks as a company is really an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort. So we have this radio platform. We have a blog. We do webinars called Dementia Chats. We do a lot of training, um, both live and um, long distance. And then we have a resource directory. And again, we're all about trying to help people connect the dots and give them support, have these everyday conversations about the disease so we can get it out of the closet and on the table and um, remove the isolation that is, is so sad about this disease. We truly believe by joining forces and sharing knowledge and, again, just having these everyday conversations about dementia that we can remove the stigmas associated to memory loss and help people live purpose-filled lives um, if they're diagnosed with uh, dementia or if they're caring for someone with dementia. At our core, we believe collaboratively we really are going to win this battle. But again, it's going to take all of us. And I have been absolutely amazed at all our audience has done for us here at Alzheimer's Speaks. Your clicks, your likes of the radio show, of our Facebook pages, of our blog and our website have just... um, helped so much in terms of getting the word out and and offering others information and and a resource to go when dealing with this disease. Because most of us are pretty shocked how many people in our lives are actually struggling. But this is a conversation that isn't had. And so by you just sharing 
basic information about this radio show or our blogs or our dementia chats where we interview people living with the disease, it can be life-changing for those who haven't had an outlet. So I really urge you to continue that. And I, I know the power that that has because I had the honor of being named the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz. And Sherry, Sherry Snelling, who is going to be with me today, is also one of the top ten experts uh, named by ShareCare. She was number three. So um, we totally understand and appreciate the power of working collaboratively and having Again, just these everyday conversations about the disease. If you haven't visited our website, I would um, encourage you to go there. It's just alzheimersspeaks.com. So that's two S's in the middle and one at the end. And there you'll find all types of information. Today on the show... Um, like any other show, you can utilize your chat box to join the conversation. I'll be reviewing that throughout the show. Or you can always call in live and pose a question or make a comment. And that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4754. And just Push one, and you will. You know what I said that number wrong. It's seven one four three six four four seven five seven, and just push one. You will get into my queue, and from there, when there's a break in the conversation, I'll pull you in to join us. Because again, Alzheimer's Speaks is about raising everyone's voice, and it doesn't, you know, make any difference if you're a professional or if you're a family member, or if you're a person diagnosed, everybody's voice is valued here. Now, many times people ask, um, and so this is going to kind of be a little brief commercial, of where do I go to get some additional support in my community? And the Alzheimer's Disease International Association um, is the association of all Alzheimer's associations worldwide. And so if you're looking for an association in your neck of the woods, I would recommend that you go to Alzheimer's Disease International. We are such a global community now. Um, maybe you're not looking for one for yourself, but for a parent or for a friend, um, this is really an easy way to go ahead and find them. Plus, they have tons of great information out there. Um, I'd also like to do a shout-out to um, Music First with Coral Health. Um, music is so powerful. I'm just a big, big believer in the power of music and the emotional ties that it has. Um, the way it can help us change our moods. You've probably all cried in the car or laughed or thought of a fond memory when uh, a song has triggered an emotion in you. This doesn't go away when we have dementia. And so music can be a really, really powerful, powerful tool. And Music First is one that you can actually download onto your iPhones um, or you can you know, go to the website and get more information. You don't have to just use the app either. Uh, the Alzheimer's Studies is a trial because a lot of times people want to get involved and try to make a difference. And um, by partaking in a trial study, um, this one happens to be for uh, 
how entangles and just go to the alzheimersstudies.com or you can go to the alzheimer's team on facebook then there are also several different types of dementias and i won't get into all of them but i am going to highlight a few uh, different associations because you know you do have to call on different skill sets and and different information and so in addition to the Alzheimer's Association, there's the Lewy Body Dementia Association, the Association for Frontal Temporal Lobe, and the, um, you know, there's one for vascular dementia as well. And so, uh, and for aphasia is another one where people have trouble with their words. Um, these are all great, great resources. The Purple Angel Project is the new global symbol started by Norms McNamara over in the UK that's starting to catch fire here in the US as well. And I'm really excited to be part of that project. Um, again, we need to come together and start using the same language, the same symbols, if we're going to make a difference. And then if you're looking just for some things for activities, um, Puzzle With Me is a is a great opportunity or the Jiminy Wicket program um, where you can play croquet is a wonderful, wonderful uh, route to be able to share and engage. Last, I want to give a shout out to ShareCare uh, again. And for those of you that don't know who ShareCare is, they are a health and wellness social media platform that connects people with top-ranking experts ranging from doctors to specialists to hospital hospitals uh, to healthcare companies and health-conscious consumers. And the power of this site is really very unique because it's all about a question-and-answer format and, again, gathering that collective wisdom and sharing. And this site was created by Dr. Oz and Jeff Arnold, who also partnered with Harpo Studios, that's Oprah, for those of you that don't know, Sony Pictures, and the Discovery uh, Communications. So if you haven't checked out sharecare.com, I, I would highly, highly recommend that you do that. You can peruse that site all day long and, and not get through it. There's just great, great information there. So let me go ahead and introduce my co-host and guest, uh, Sherry Snelling. Sherry has been with us before, and she is she really just is a joy. She is just one of those people that um, I have never met her in person, but my guess is when you walk into a room with her, she would light it up because that's just what she does in conversation when I've talked to her by phone. She has this great energy and insight and wisdom and compassion that just kind of oozes out of her. And Sherry is the CEO and founder of the Caregiving Club. She's also the author of a wonderful book that's quite interesting called A Cast of Caregivers. And that's about celebrity stories um, to help you prepare to care. She is a nationally recognized expert on America's 65 million family caregivers with a special emphasis on how to help caregivers balance self-care while caring for a loved one. And Lord knows we all need help with that. Even when we think we have it under control, it starts slipping away from us. It's one of those really subtle, subtle things that happens. Sherry is a caregiving contributor for the Huffington Post, Forbes.com, 
USA Today uh, Weekend Magazine, PBS, and Next Avenue, The Examiner, Maria Shriver, um, the Alzheimer's Association, more, and Empower Her, and, and many others. Again, very, very well-recognized woman. She is the creator of Me Time Monday, um, which is weekly videos in support of nonprofit Healthy Mondays campaign, and the creator and producer of a cable program called Handle With Care. Sherry uh, was recently recognized, again with me, as one of the top ten influencers by ShareCare uh, for Alzheimer's. And um, I know that she feels that that's a huge honor, as do I, and it's just been kind of an amazing ride. She's also the former chairman of the National Alliance for Caregiving and um, the leading caregiving advocacy nonprofit organization based in Washington. And she served on caregiving advisory councils for the White House Middle Task uh, Force and the United Nations International Caregiving Summit. So what can I say? This woman, woman really knows what she's talking about, and she's making a difference. So welcome, Sherry. How are you today? I'm great, Lori, and I just want to, you know, thank you so much for those kind words of introduction and tell your listeners that it's always such a privilege to be on your show, and, you know, I just love what you're doing and and love to join you in getting the word out and getting good information and good resources and helping as many people as we can, so thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. I'm really excited. You know, I've never had a a true co-host um for quite a while. Uh Rick Phelps used to join me when we first when I first started this, uh who was with Memory People um on Facebook and, you know, that just got a little bit more difficult between schedules and things and and so I've been doing this by myself for for quite a while now. So it's going to be nice to share the platform with you this month. Uh so so thank you for taking the time to to be part Part of Alzheimer's Speaks. Um, with that to start out, we might as well give people a better idea of who the heck Sherry Snelling is and what you're <laughs> up to. So I'm going to pose a few questions to you if you don't mind, and hopefully I don't blindside sure. you at all. But you know, <laughs> sure. you you wrote about caregiving tipping points for the PBS uh, Next Avenue. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what what are caregiving tipping points? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because um, I write for so many different outlets, as you were naming them off there, and, you know, on a variety of different subjects. And one of the ones that really resonated with readers, and we got so many wonderful comments and lots of feedback, was this whole notion of, you know, we know so much about caregiving and we know you know, what it entails, but what is that point that you come to when you're in the midst of caregiving where you just realize, you know what, I just may not be able to do this anymore, or I may need more help, or something's got to change. And, it, and it's a variety of factors that bring you to that point, but that's that's really what, you know, kind of prompted me to want to write this article about what are those tipping points, and of course we know you read the statistics, 65 million Americans are caregivers right now, and that really represents amazingly one out of every household, every three, sorry, every three households in the U.S. has a caregiver, 
living under its roof, which is pretty staggering when you think about it. Um, we also know, again, talking more specifically about Alzheimer's and dementia, 15 million Americans are caring for someone with dementia. And so, you know, we all go through this caregiving process differently. It's very personal and very uh, unique to us. And so it's hard to put a blanket statement on what the tipping point is going to be for everyone, and it is different. And so I wrote this article and basically broke down the areas that I found in talking to caregivers across the country and different experts that are these tipping points. And and they kind of fall into several buckets. One is the physical challenges, which we can talk a little bit more about. The second bucket is more around safety challenges for both you and your loved one. And the third bucket is around behavioral challenges. And, you know, I can take your listeners through each of those, but those are kind of the three areas that we find people hit a wall and decide, you know what, I really need more help or I need a, I need a change somehow in helping me care for my loved one. Which is really, really true. Uh, those really are the, the three biggies, the physical, the safety, and the behavioral. Um, now, with um, I'm going to ask you to just to break away from this for just a second because the other thing mm-hmm. um, I wanted to um, have you tell our listeners about, because I think a lot of people don't know about the PBS Next Avenue platform. Uh-huh. Um, sure. Can you just speak to why that is a good resource for people? And then we can jump back into the tipping points a little bit more. Absolutely. Well, I I was so thrilled to be asked to contribute articles to this website. It it is a PBS um, backed and, um, you know, uh, supported um, effort. And what they decided to do, and it actually came out of – the Minneapolis uh, Public Television Group, um, and they saw that um, the boomers, obviously, um, have specific things happening within that demographic and caregiving being one of those things. And they decided to launch this website as an online place for people um, to gather to get good information about what's happening, you know, to people who are 50-plus. And they really positioned it as very similar to what they did with Sesame Street with children. You know, that became a place to educate as well as, you know, kind of provide some good entertainment and information, and that's what Next Avenue is. That is the site now for boomers in the same way they did Sesame Street. So they've got great articles, lots of really, really good information. And if you haven't visited the site, it's nextavenue.org. And um, resources with links, they've got great videos. There's a lot of um, excerpts from a variety of different PBS programs that have been done. Um, One recently that was really poignant was on assisted living and what's happening in that arena. So I really encourage people to check it out because it is a a wonderful resource to visit and, and get really good information. Okay, great. Thank you for for just explaining that because I, I always like again for people to know about different different resources available and I and I think it's good to hear from other people instead of just me blabbing away. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> different perspectives there. So thank you. So can you take sure. us through each of the tipping points and what we should look out for um, when we're giving care, when we're a caregiver or a care partner? Um, what are some of the signs? 
Sure. Well, as we said, these tipping points, you know, that famous poster that we all see, uh, keep calm and carry on, I think that's kind of the mantra of most caregivers. You know, every day we get up and we, you know, we instill ourselves with strength and stamina and the courage to keep going, but there comes a day and there comes a point where you just feel overwhelmed and you feel like, oh, my gosh, you know, I may not be able to do this. And and so some of the reasons why, let's start with the physical challenges. You know, I think it's it's intuitive, but we don't think about it enough. And it's simple things like helping your loved one walk or lifting them. And particularly, you know, if they have fallen, um, this becomes a serious problem for both the, the person you're caring for, whether it's your parent or your spouse or perhaps even a sister or brother, um, but also yourself. Um, one of the reports that I referenced in my article is that 52% of the back problems and muscle pulls and aches and injuries that occur for caregivers are occurring because they're lifting a loved one off the floor who has fallen or they're transferring them perhaps from, say, like a, a wheelchair into the bed or, you know, um, doing some type of transfer to help them bathe or whatever. So it's it's a physical problem for both, as I said, the loved one who has fallen and maybe then suffers more injuries but also the caregiver. So it's it's something we really need to think about when we get into caregiving and we realize, okay, mom or dad, need so much more help and, you know, if you're a 130 or 140-pound woman and you've got a 200-pound dad that you need to lift, that's just not going to work. Um, so it, it is an important issue and it is one where a lot of caregivers find they do need extra help and whether that help comes in the form of, you know, some type of in-home care, a home health aid, or someone that can help, or even um, perhaps that's the point where you need to have the discussion with mom or dad about, you know, for safety reasons, I don't know if we can continue having you live in the home. What can we do? Let's let's map out a plan and have that discussion. And I know those are tough conversations to have. We talked about that. And then if you do help a loved one who has fallen, because we're in a panic when we see, you know, our mom on the floor in a heap, the first thing you want to do is, is lift her and help her. But you have to use proper technique. And, you know, this is something that, again, is it goes back to kind of the old exercise days when you think about uh, the Olympics. I always think about the Olympics and those wonderful weightlifters, um, you know, who are getting those huge dumbbells over their head. Well, think about that in the sense of how you lift someone. What you never want to do is bend over from the waist and then lift up. You have to bend with your knees, um, so you definitely have to be really careful about that. You don't want to twist, so you have to be in the proper um, position, and um, you have to make sure you have a firm grip and let your leg muscles do most of the work. Um, so, you know, there are some great, um, you know, uh, videos that are out there on YouTube and there's also great visuals that are on some websites. Agingcare.com is one that I saw that had some good information that shows you visually how to properly lift someone. So I really encourage caregivers to think about that dynamic in terms of just the physical challenges of lifting a loved one um, that you may have to do. And that's one you of know, the physical. 
Uh-huh. You know, yeah. I think that that's a really, really good point. I mean, I'm 54, and I don't know what happened to my body in this last year, but I have lost muscle mass and toning, and well, probably because I don't exercise like I should. Um, but I have gotten so weak, and I used to be just a bulldog. I mean, I, I used to be so strong, and and you know, but and my mind still thinks I am, and then I go to do something, and it's like. Holy crap, I, I'm starting to have lower back problems. And, I mean, I just feel it all over, and I know that I need to do some stretching and and really start exercising um, and, and, and tone my muscle because my mind still thinks I'm a 20-year-old kid that can, you know, lift a truck, and I can't. And uh, right. the, little, the littlest things, like you said, with turning and the yeah. things that we took for granted, um, you know, we can't anymore. So we have to be more conscientious um, about caring for ourselves so that we can care better for others because I see so many people get physically hurt um, in these roles. And yeah. um and. And also knowing when it's time to ask for help to say, you know what, I just can't do this. This isn't safe for me. And if you go down as a caregiver, you're not just pulling yourself down. You're pulling both of you down. And I don't think there's a caregiver out there that wants that to happen. And so to protect that, sometimes we have to say we need help. And that that's okay. Yeah. Well, and I know how you feel. You know, I... Always have felt again that I've been in pretty good physical shape, but lately my knees are just not working like they used to. <laughs> so when I say to people, "You've got to bend your knees," I know that that could be something where people are your listeners are rolling their eyes, going, "Yeah, right," because I even have trouble now bending down into more of that squat position. I'll, I'll tell you a personal story. You know, my dad was recently in hospice care, and, and unfortunately, we lost him a couple of months ago, but. We uh, we had him at home. That's where he wanted to be, and we honored that wish for him. Um, but he was a big man. You know, he was six foot three, and even though he had lost some weight with um, his illness, he was still about two hundred uh, or two hundred and ten pounds. And um, he was very obstinate, as we all know. A lot of our loved ones can be. Didn't like the hospital bed that we had for him at home, and insisted on you know sleeping in his own bed. And all of that sounds fine and probably very uh, familiar to a lot of caregivers out there. But the problem was one night he rolled over and fell out of bed. Well, my stepmom is a, a tiny little thing. I mean, she probably weighs 115 pounds soaking wet. Um, you know, I'm I'm a lot bigger and stronger than that. But between myself, she called me, and I just live, you know, down the street. So I ran over there. And then my um, my brother was also at home, my younger brother, who's a big, strong guy. But between the three of us, we could not lift him off the floor. And this is this is the kind of thing, it, it doesn't sound that bad when you get into caregiving, but let me tell you, when you're facing that and your loved one's in pain and he was moaning and he had hit his head on the dresser and it was bleeding, I mean, you know, you're just in an emotional panic, you're in distress. In that instance, we had to call 911 to get the paramedics to come over to help lift him. But these are the tipping points for caregivers. And we continued to figure out resolutions to keep him at home. But sometimes this is the point when your loved one isn't terminal like my dad was. And, he, you know, they may be living at home for a long time 
or want to live at home for a long time, but is it safe? And what can you do then to make it safer so that you can avoid some of these things? So that's just an example of what happens in this this kind of area of falling and not being able to lift your loved one. And what's hard, too, is that we all tend to make these promises that, I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm never going to place you and I will always take care of you. And, and we say that when people are healthy. And then yeah. we forget that the circumstances have greatly changed. And safety has to come first, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, for yeah. all parties. And that doesn't mean that you love somebody less. That really, I mean, that's kind of that unconditional tough love. And, you know, sometimes I think it's almost harder on us than it is on them, depending on the stage a person is in. Um, It can be a rough adjustment. But if you end up having to place or pull in some home care support, and as long as you don't abandon them, you know, you're still there. I, I really think you can work through that, um, you know, but it's it's that scary, scary piece of letting somebody down and um, feeling not good enough. And, you know, if you're doing the best you can, that's all you can expect. Well, you know, you bring up a really, really important point, Lori, and it's something I know you and I have talked about, and um, I write about this in my book, and it really goes back to that core caregiving conversation. It is so critical to have. It's easy to say and hard to do. Um, It's a tough one, you know, when you have parents who don't want to face maybe their own, you know, their own mortality and their own aging issues. They don't want to admit to it. They don't want to burden you as the adult child. And yet it's so crucial. And and you're right in saying, you know, so often, and I talk to a lot of caregivers out there and I counsel them, you know, don't make promises you may not be able to keep because it hurts both you, you have so much guilt then, and it hurts your loved one because there's just sometimes necessities. There's just impossibility of perhaps carrying out that wish. So what I tell caregivers is have the conversation thoughtfully, and as you said, Hopefully you're having this conversation before the crisis hits because it's so much harder after the fact. But have the conversation and say, okay, let's make make a plan, Mom. Um, And your mom may say, well, I definitely don't want to be in home. Okay, well, let's talk that through. And so, you know, knowing about what caregiving may face, and it's both, as we're talking here, it's some of these tipping points, it's the cost factor, you know, if your mom says, I need to stay at home, I don't want to be in a nursing home, that's all well and good, but does she have then the financial income to support perhaps at some point round the clock in home care, which is, you know, hugely expensive, but those are the things where the, where the light bulb goes off then and it's like, aha. So when we start to have these thoughtful conversations and really be practical about it rather than emotional and say, I'm here to be your partner, let's put a plan together. But we do have to have a plan because sometimes things change. And, again, Lori, you and I have both seen it personally as well have talked to so many caregivers. Caregiving is not, um, it's not static. It doesn't stay in the same space throughout the duration of caregiving. You know, very often we start as caregivers in a very slow way. Um, It's just running errands, maybe, um, you know, uh, scraping, you know, shoveling snow out of the driveway or, you know, um, taking care of the the, the leaves. 
or home repairs, and it can start very simply. And then gradually, as your parent ages, it starts to take on more and more of your time, more and more of your emotional and physical abilities. And, you know, we know the average duration for caregiving is 4.6 years, but my gosh, I've talked to so many caregivers who have been doing it now for 10 years or even 20 years. So it could be a very long journey, and that journey takes different steps and stages and phases, and you have to be aware of that. And so making a promise when your loved one is maybe a little healthier now and saying, yeah, we'll always keep you at home, Mom, that might be something that's practical, but it may not be practical in 10 years as her needs change and you're not a professional, you're not trained as a nurse, you can't be diligent 24-7, my goodness, you've got to get sleep. So I I think you bring up such an important point and that is this whole conversation about caregiving that we all need to have. Well, and, you know, for, for Alzheimer's and dementia, the statistics are that the average care partner um, puts in, I think it was 21.9 hours a week. Now, how many mm-hmm. people have that much extra time? Most of us are, are mm-hmm. scrambling for an extra 15 or 20 minutes. and But like you said, it kind of creeps up. So not only is it, you know, physical abilities, emotional abilities, financial, you know, capabilities, um, but it's time constraints too. And And one of the vital questions that I think you have to ask yourself when you're feeling really guilty, and because guilt is usually wrapped pretty closely with caregiving, <laughs> it, right. it wraps up there. Doing <laughs> the right thing, and it's just this bright little package sitting in front of you all the time. Is also asked when you've maybe made that promise of I'll never place you or I'll never have somebody come into the home. I'll I'll take care of you. It'll be me. It'll be only me. You know we can do this together. Also mm-hmm. ask yourself, would your loved one want you to give up that much of your life or to put your life or your health in jeopardy? And my answer, my guess to that is probably no. So when mm-hmm. you're looking at that gift of guilt, that box sitting before you, you know, look at it from all sides. You know, really, really take that whole person approach. And, you know, the fear that comes out is, you know, you can't do this to me and you promised. But there is a whole other side. And sometimes, you know, we're able to explain that to the person that we're caring for, for them to understand. And other times, you know, we're not in that position where they're going to be able to, to understand. But knowing in our own right, that we have done everything that we can do um, that's fair to everybody. Yeah. Well, it's so true. And, I, and again, I find I write about this in my book. It's in a chapter called The Care Conversation. But um, I find that, you know, caregiving is so emotional and it brings up so many Oh, that that whole dynamic between you and your parent, and it, it's so difficult to navigate. But if you can try to make it as practical as possible, and again, the financial aspect of it often becomes an area that can be reasoned through. And so, as I said, you know, mom might now like might be very adamant that she wants to stay at home. But if you sit down with her 
and you show her what that cost is, and then you look at her nest egg and what she may have saved or what her long-term care uh, plan and benefits say, all of a sudden it starts to, you know, they we help our loved ones see, oh, wow, this may not work, <laughs> you know. Yep. And so it's it's really that education process, and I really find that, um, right now, at the age that many of us are, who are boomers, we are the educators about caregiving because we're facing it more and more. We're starting to learn more and more. Shows like what you do with Alzheimer's Speaks and the blogs that you and I both write, we are trying to get as much good resources and information you know, into the hands of caregivers so that they can have these conversations and they can help their loved ones. And it's it's not just that emotional yes, I'll do whatever you need, it's okay, I want to do whatever you need, but let's take a look at the what that means. And I think that's that's where the conversation has to turn. We have to start getting to that practical side of it for both the caregiver and the loved one's sake, you know, to make it real. Exactly, exactly. Well, why don't you give us another example um, of your tipping points. We kind of talked about physical. Um, what about sure. safety or behavioral? Yeah, and I wanted to mention, too, in the article, if you go to uh, nextavenue.org, you can read my article. Um, in the physical area, another big one, and I won't go in into it because we want to go through all these three buckets, but um, incontinence, which um, is the inability, obviously, to control um, you know, your urine flow, your bladder and bowel movements. It's a it's a horrible topic, honestly. It's something nobody wants to face, no one wants to talk about. And yet it is a very, very common aspect of caregiving. And so if you are caring for a loved one at home, it's something you probably will face. And there are some great resources out there. Um, one that I want to always do a shout-out to is the Caregiver Partnership, which offers so much great information um, they have over 400 different types of adult diapers. And by the way, adult diapers is, doesn't sound great. You know, that's something none of us want to think about. But <clears throat> there's um, such a variety of great stuff out there right now. Depend has wonderful um, things that look just like really stylish, you know, kind of underwear for both men and women. So I want to encourage people to really look into it. You can get samples from them if you want to before you have to go out and buy a lot of these. But that's a big one that a lot of caregivers face in the physical bucket. Um, when it comes to the safety challenges bucket, um, you know, we talked a little bit about falls and the the issue there. And, you know, one of the things I did want to let people know is that, you know, every 28 minutes a senior dies from an injury from falling at home. Now that's Again, a staggering statistic and not something we think about a lot. <clears throat> Falling with our older loved ones is so, so uh, critical. You know, breaking a hip or, as we see, a fatality because they've fallen at home is just, you know, it's just something we really need to be cognizant about. So, again, if you've got a, a parent or even parents who are both a little bit more frail, a little bit more, you know, older, can't navigate as well, um, the risk of falling is very high, and you need to be aware of that. Um, but in this bucket of safety challenges, you know, one of the things I think, and it happens so often with um, people who are diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's, is the wandering issue. And, you know, again, statistically we know that 60% 
of those who have Alzheimer's disease will have a tendency to wander. And this puts, puts them at a huge risk um, because, again, you know, if they wander out of the house and then they get confused and don't know where they're at, you know, um, they could get lost. In, I know you said that you're gonna you're expecting your first snowstorm today in Minneapolis. Yeah. Think about think about if you know a parent wandered outside of the house and you're at work and you don't know this and all of a sudden you know they're sitting in the snow all day or something. I mean it just it's 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 frightening to think about. But wandering is huge. And one of the things I wanted to let people know is that there's a lot of really great technology out there now, and um, you know you can find. A lot of um, of great um, gadgets and things that you can do to help pro- prohibit, I guess, the wandering or or keep your loved one safe. And one that I really love is from the Alzheimer's Association, and it's called Comfort Zone. And it's basically a GPS-enabled device, and uh, and I really like it because it is um, it is something again where you can both sit down, you can sit down with your loved one, and you can decide, okay. And this is, of course, if your loved one still has that cognitive ability to understand what their disease means. And so you say, okay, Dad, I know you really love walking to church every Sunday or going to the corner market to get your groceries every week. And, you know, that's not too far, and it's a good physical exercise for you. So what you do is you set what they call a geofence. So it's a, it's a literal uh, perimeter um, from the home base, and then if your loved one agrees, they can wear this device, and it's a, it's either you, it can be a little lavalier, it can be a belt clip, it can even be in, in your watch. There's there's other stuff out there that even has it embedded in your shoes that look like walking shoes, but it has a GPS on you. And so if you wander and you break that perimeter, and let's say you're the adult daughter, you're the caregiver at work you will get an immediate text message or an email ping or whatever you set up letting you know the perimeter is broken, but also because of the GPS, you know exactly where your loved one is. And this is another issue. When our loved ones wander off, we don't know where they are. And so often the police are called in to help find them, which uses their resources. So this is, to me, this is the great thing about technology and caregiving that is starting to evolve out there to help us be better caregivers and help keep our loved ones safe. Well, and and that is so important because that is so, so scary. And there's lots of different types of GPS units out there. I know Verizon has has one that they've rolled out. I know Tenactus has an app that you can put on a on an iPhone, which is a wonderful thing, and it, it does some other stuff too. But, again, if somebody isn't going to hold on to that. It doesn't do you any good. So in the shoes is a great idea and, and some of these other avenues. So you really have to, you know, match up what is going to work best for your particular situation. And just because it works good for your friend doesn't mean it's going to be perfect for you because this right. disease um, and the elements of it, you know, they vary. And so, um, but it's great to share knowledge with people. Wonderful, wonderful route to be able to go. How about on the the behavioral side? Is there um, anything you want to touch base with on that for your tipping point? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's, there's a couple of things that happen in this whole bucket of behavioral challenges. And one is, 
you know, aggressive behavior. Again, we see this a lot with um, with people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia, and it might be associated with something called sundowning, which, you know, typically happens at dusk, and they become um, more paranoid, more aggressive. They can have outbursts. They can even become physically, uh, you know, almost abusive. And this is frightening. This is so frightening because, again, Alzheimer's is a disease which really does almost change your loved one into someone you may not even recognize or know. And it's it's so hard, I think, to face the fact that your mom is trying to beat on you because she has no idea what's, you know, what's going on inside her own mind. And this becomes really tough. Um, and I've seen and talked with a lot of caregivers and some support groups, both with the uh, veterans um, caregivers who are facing loved ones who come home with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or with Alzheimer's caregivers who face these issues of physical outbursts. Um, And so, you know, again, there's guilt that you might not be able to continue to care for them because of this. But let's face it, you can't put yourself at physical risk. And you don't have the, the, the skill set to cope both emotionally as well as physically with somebody who might have these types of outbursts. And so, you know, it's really it's really tough because you know facing that is a difficult decision but you have to also think about yourself and your own needs and what's best for both both you and your loved one um so that's one the other one that happens is just this whole failure to communicate if your loved one perhaps had a stroke um or they've had throat surgery and they can't really speak um, and so, you know, that becomes a tipping point for caregivers because, again, you're not trained in how to communicate with them. Um, so you have to find ways to get some training, and there are different, again, there are different organizations out there. There are certainly a lot of geriatric care managers and others that can help you understand, okay, your loved one's had a stroke. This is how you might be able to help communicate with them. And... um or that becomes the point where you do need more professional help because they're going to be the ones that can really identify how to, um, you know, how to get through to your loved one, how to understand the gestures or even just the eyes, look in their eyes and know what they're trying to get across to you. Um, and so, you know, these are areas where, again, um, communication, aggressive behavior, these become behavioral changes that we don't expect when we're caregivers that become a tipping point for us in that you can't just do it by yourself anymore. Exactly. Um, well, great, great information on uh, on explaining what tipping points are and why they are so critical to all of us. What advice do you give caregivers about coping with tipping points? What are, well, what are some yeah. major things they need to think about? You know, that's that's always the, the, the tough one because, again, as I said up front, every caregiving situation is unique. It's like snowflakes or fingerprints. Each one of our situations is going to be just unique to us. And so it's hard to say, well, you need to do this because everybody's going to hit that tipping point at a different point, a different uh, time, if you will, during their caregiving journey. But what I say is, you know, the, the guilt that you talked about earlier is something, it's a blanket that we wrap ourselves in when we become caregivers. I almost think about it as being a Girl Scout again, and it's the first badge that you get is the guilt badge when you become a caregiver <laughs> because it's 
almost something none of us can avoid. You feel guilty for whatever reason, a million different things. Um, so, you know, trying to work through the guilt and trying to give yourself the pat on the back saying, listen, I'm doing my best. My priorities are in the right place. It's my safety, my loved one's safety, you know, the ability for me to help them, even if it's not me personally giving the help or giving the care. I think you have to get to a point where you really work through that guilt. And I always find, again, support groups are amazing. I mean, the ability to talk to others who are in a similar situation Finding a good support group. If you don't feel like doing a support group in person, there are wonderful groups online. So it's a little bit more anonymous, and also you don't have to leave your home. You can just log in. And so finding those groups is, is critical, or even just having an outlet, and I call it the vault. And the vault might be your best friend, or it might be your sister, or it might even be a coworker um, who is very empathetic to your situation. It can also be a professional. It can be a therapist. It can be a counselor. But someone you can talk to, because when you keep it bottled up inside, this is where I see caregivers go down. You know, their own health tends to decline. Um, you know, you start to neglect yourself because you're so overwhelmed and the guilt is eating you up and it's causing more stress. Uh might cause you to either overeat or undereat. Um may lead to depression. I mean, all of these things are kind of the big traps that we can fall into as caregivers. So find support somehow. Get Don't do it alone, and that will help you ease through this guilt, and it will also give you great insights as to how to continue to care for your loved one. And I think we have to decide caregiving does not just mean that you're the one doing the hands-on physical care. Caregiving means you're the partner, and you're the one who is the advocate. You're the one who is the troubleshooter, the problem solver. You know, you're the 007 of your your caregiving situation. <laughs> you come in and you figure out what is the best solution, and it doesn't always mean that you have to do it. The best solution might be finding great in-home care. It might be finding a great facility that knows how to manage, you know, these wonderful memory care assisted living facilities out there. So it might be finding a really great place where your loved one becomes very happy. Joan London went through this and went through the guilt like all of us and found a wonderful home for her mom, which is more of a, it's just six to eight people who live in this residential home. All the people there are trained in dementia care, but her mother is so happy. And she had to go through a series of these things to figure out the best solution, and I write about that. It's called the Goldilocks Syndrome, so that's a whole other topic. But don't always feel that caregiving means you have to do it. You just have to be the one who helps come up with the solution. That's what I tell caregivers. Well, and that's an excellent, excellent point. We're all such control freaks in this era in thinking that we have to do it all and, you know, we have to control it all. And, you know, there's there's a lot better solutions out there than just what our mind comes up with. And so, you know, it's good to explore. And granted, you know your person probably the best, but that doesn't mean that there aren't resources that can help you, um, you know, creatively come up with a new plan. 
and um, be supportive and get you back, you know, to your re- to your core relationship as well um, with your loved one. So, Sherry, thank you so much for sharing all this great information. How do people get a hold of you? Well, there's a couple of ways. First of all, you can visit my website, which is caregivingclub.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you can look at our videos on YouTube. And then if somebody wants to reach out to me personally, um, feel free to email me at Sherry, that's S-H-E-R-R-I, at caregivingclub.com. And I'll help you as, as best I can and get you to the right resources. Wonderful. Well, Sherry, you're going to stay with us and and help me proceed with the show here, but I want to go ahead and introduce our our next guest here. Um, I'm thrilled to death that we have Dr. Walter Greenleaf with us. And um, Dr. Greenleaf is the director of the Mind Division for the Sanford Center on Longevity, where he focuses on issues surrounding aging and the brain. He is trained as a research scientist with specific background in behavioral neuroscience. Previously to joining the Center on Longevity, Walter was the founder and CEO for several high-tech medical product development companies. Um, Today he's going to talk to us about a new global student design challenge which was just launched which will um, allow students to design products to allow people with early-stage cognitive impairment live safely and independently. So welcome, Dr. Greenleaf. How are you today? I'm very good, Lori. Pleased to be here with you. Well, I'm thrilled that you're, you're able to join us today. Can you tell us a little bit more about this Global Student Design Challenge? Absolutely. Well, the overarching goal of the challenge is to encourage uh, students who are in different fields. It could be the design field for designing new technology. It could be students, medical students. It could be undergraduates who have an interest. But in general, to encourage uh, students to think about what might be needed for people with cognitive impairment and to generate some ideas. And then hopefully we can help those students and those ideas move forward and become actual solutions to, to help people. Okay, wonderful. Can you give us a little bit of background about kind of the mission for the Stanford Center on Longevity for our audience? Yes, our our center is focused on the fact that we are living a lot longer than our parents' generation and their parents' generation, and as a result, there's different issues facing us. Um, one immediate uh, issue, for example, is that there's a higher percentage of people who are living long enough that uh, some of the cognitive impairments like Alzheimer's develop and there's a higher percentage. But there's other issues related to the fact that we're all living many, many years longer than than um, previous generations have, uh, such as uh, issues involving financial security, planning for living a longer life, or issues involving um, mobility. Uh, in addition to some of the health-related problems that happen with cognition, uh, pe- people often lose their independence because of uh, changes in their ability to, to get around. So our center focuses on helping catalyze research, catalyze discussion, addressing public policy, uh, trying to help out in a variety of ways to address these emerging problems. 
And Dr. Greenleaf, this is Sherry Snelling, and I'm so thrilled to to be here to you know help interview you today. But I'm, I'm really really interested in this program because I love to hear about these multi generational efforts. And I'm wondering, with the students that are involved so far in your contest, are you seeing a change in how they perceive Alzheimer's dementia? You know, we know there's been such a stigma around the disease. Do you do you feel that this is really helping? to expand, you know, our understanding of what this disease is really all about? Well, uh, Sherry, I'm, I don't know yet. We just recently announced the contest, and there's a submission deadline of December 2nd for the first phase. So we haven't yet had the chance to see um, some of the ideas that the students will be generating. I, I'm pretty, just by word of mouth and a few of the uh, people I've talked to, I, I think we will generate a lot of very exciting ideas but uh, I really don't have a good list of them yet for you. And what what made you choose Alzheimer's specifically as something to build your, your design contest around? Well, I, I should clarify, it's not Alzheimer's specifically, it's cognitive impairment. So, of course, Alzheimer's is a big big part of that, but uh, mm-hmm. there's other dementias, other um, you know issues involving memory loss and ability to navigate around the world uh, that, Alzheimer's is part of, but uh, there's other issues like Lewy body disease and vascular dementia that hopefully these technologies will also help with. And in terms of what made us choose uh, cognitive impairment in general, well, we're going to be doing this contest every year. And this year was our inaugural contest, and we chose uh, cognitive issues just because they're so significant uh, with the aging process. But I think next year we'll probably be addressing a similar issue like like mobility, for example. But uh, we want to start with um, cognition because it's uh, important. Wonderful. Well, this this is Lori again. I'm thrilled that you're starting with the cognitive because I think it is so significant and such a high, high need out there. And I'm glad to hear that you're focusing on a wider span than just Alzheimer's because so many people out there have multiple and dual diagnosis as well, and everybody needs help. And I think there's keys into all these pieces that can that can overlap. Um, I, I see that all the time just through social media, people sharing information, going, oh, well, that would work for me too, you know, <laughs> or, or maybe we could modify that, and, and that'll really work for me. So um, I, I think it's very, very exciting what all your – what all you're up to. How do people um, participate in the design contest? Well, a good way to start is to go to our website. Um, all the information on how to participate is there, but uh, which is, um, let me read it out for you now if that's okay. Um, it's sure. Longevity, longevity 3, L-O-N-G-E-V-I-T-Y 3, dot Stanford, S-T-A-N-F-O-R-D, edu slash design challenge slash and that'll take you to the website or or probably searching for Stanford design challenge um, for cognitive impairment would find it also and there um, people participate by initially uh, signing up and then that puts you into communication with us and we can send you further information and then there's a place to submit your ideas uh, there's two phases to participating. One is um, to come up with some general ideas that you could uh, elaborate through a sketch or through a video, a short video describing your idea or uh, typing it up. And any, uh, enough information for the judges to 
get a sense as to what you're trying to propose and how it might be helpful for someone with cognitive impairment. The deadline for submit, submitting those initial ideas is December 2nd. After that, there's a preliminary review, and we select some semifinalists to go forward. Uh, we provide them with a couple thousand dollars to help uh, elaborate their idea, and then there's another process of working on the idea and submitting it uh, for final review, and then we announce the winners in April. Now, do people have to be a, a student of Stanford, or is this open to anybody? Oh, this is to open to anyone, and uh, people can apply as a team also. As a matter of fact, I, I think that many of the ideas will be submitted as a group effort. The, the principal requirement, though, is that someone on the team has to be a student, and they could be a high school student, they could be an undergraduate student, they could be a, a graduate student, a medical student, but there does have to be a student as part of the team, and we look for the student to be the one to present the idea, but a team could work on the idea together. Right. And what, um, Dr. Greenleaf, what in April, what would the finalists get? Are, are you going to help, you know, do something with the ideas, or what's going to happen when they do, you know, you pick your finalists? Well, uh, they'll receive a $10,000 award. Um, we'll also, um, they'll get a lot of exposure in introduction to um, potential research groups or development groups that can help move the idea forward. Great. So we, we'd, we'd like this not only to catalyze thinking, but actually result in some products that will help caregivers or help people with uh, cognitive impairment directly. And that was going to be one of my other questions. Is is part of this um, effort incorporating the caregivers themselves and not just the patient who may be diagnosed or have the cognitive impairment? Do you incorporate that? Absolutely. It's it's to 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 make the life of someone who has cognitive impairment uh, better and facilitate independence. And as you know, a big part of that is also uh, making sure that the caregivers are are helped and supported. And and uh, uh, it's a it's an ecosystem. And so supporting caregiving is a very important part of this. I, I should also mention that we have a section on our website for community input, where we've asked for feedback from people who work in the field of cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's or people who might have cognitive impairment, or people who are studying cognitive impairment, anyone who has an interest to submit uh, suggestions so that if someone out there is a good designer but they really don't need, know exactly what someone might need, they can look at this community input and, and get some ideas. Well, that is great. wonderful. Yeah. It's, it really is great. I I hope that you will, you know, keep us posted here at Alzheimer's Speaks because we'd love to help promote and facilitate discussion on this, and, and we'd love to have you back when you, you know, announce your finalists, if you're going to announce finalists, and then, you know, at the end um, who won the, the project itself. Um, but anything that we can do to help support you, we would love we would love to do that. Well, thank you. I, I think I think our our objective here is to get the word out and to encourage a lot of dialogue about this. And I think, in, in that sense, uh, we we definitely will need your help and uh, and definitely keep you posted. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining with us today, Sherry. Do you have any uh, last questions uh, for Dr. Greenleaf before we let him go? No, I just want to applaud this inaugural effort, Dr. Greenleaf. We look forward to many years of this contest. It just sounds wonderful. Well, thank you very much, and, and, and thank you very much for the wonderful work that you both do, too. 
Well, great. You have a wonderful day. And again, for people who want to um, find out more information about the Global Student Design Challenge, you can go to Longevity and then the number 3.stanford.edu forward slash design challenge. And there you will get tons of information. And again, thank you, Dr. Greenleaf and Stanford, for all you're doing. Really appreciate you um, moving things forward and and assisting um, all of us in terms of being creative and finding different types of products uh, to assist those in need. And, and Lori, I should mention one last thing. We, we have a partner in this effort, too, uh, the organization Aging 2.0, and they've been instrumental in helping us uh, shape this contest and, and get the word out and, and bring in the community. So uh, they're, they're a, a, a wonderful partner here, and I encourage uh, your listeners to check out uh, Aging 2.0 also. Wonderful. Can you, can you tell people briefly what they do well, in a um, nutshell? Sure. Uh, Katie and Stephen... Um, are out there trying to encourage new technology for helping with um, all aspects of aging, much like we are at the Center on Longevity. Um, but they're they're putting together a lot of public meetings and events. Um, one of the things they've started is a, what they call uh, the generator, which is a technology accelerator where they're taking startups that are interested in developing technology for the aging market and they actually help them by connecting them with potential investors, by connecting them with mentors, and helping them start the process of building a business and getting a product out. Um, I, I couldn't applaud them more. Wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Um, this is great information, and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye thank now. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and do kind of our mid-program break and just give you some updates here. Um, our last radio show, if you didn't hear it, you need to go back and listen to it. All of the shows are podcasts, so they're archived. But this last show on October 29th was titled Life and Death with Dementia, the Taboo Talk. And it, it's really quite interesting to hear people's perspectives um, on this topic. And I was so proud of our audience, um, both on the radio, but uh, but on the Internet as well, in all the various groups. People were so respectful in terms of conversation, even if they didn't agree. And to me, I just felt so proud that people were listening. They don't have to agree, but people were listening um, to one another's needs and being real respectful. So um, I would encourage you to listen to that show. Our next show on Tuesday will continue on with the um, Alzheimer's and Caregiving uh, National Month, and we were going to have a loaded show there. We're going to be talking about initiatives for global change. Our last Dementia Chats was on the 22nd, and that was really interesting. Our experts diagnosed with dementia talked about what it's like for them, what they would like to see change for businesses and communities to become dementia-friendly. A lot of great specific examples and how it impacts them and their caregiver and how little teeny changes that don't have to cost much can have a big impact. Great, great training video and informational 
uh, video on that. And again, you can find that on alzheimerspeaks.com. Go to our About section, then down to Dementia Chats. They're all archived. I don't quite have all of them loaded, but this one is the last uh, several months are up there. Um, on the blog, we've had lots of discussion um, from promoting this uh Let's talk on Tuesday with, with Sherry. Uh, there was a blog post on 10 things to discuss with your parents' doctors. Um, I'm doing quite a few talks uh, in the next couple of weeks with Keystone Communities, which is free. So I'm heading to, uh, well, I was in Prior Lake last night, I'm going to Highland tonight, um, Mankato, um, Minnesota tomorrow, and then Fairbolt, Roseville, and Egan. So kind of doing this tour. If you're in any of those areas, um, please feel free to RSVP and, and come. There was also an article on Alzheimer's-inspired tattoos. So if you've gotten a tat, um, because of dementia, they want to see it and promote it. Our intern, Michelle, wrote uh, a blog post called Happy Hour that's quite cute. And then I reposted information on the Boomer Voices with Verizon, lots of different tech products out there that can help you as a caregiver or um, as a person living with dementia. And then I would be amiss if I didn't mention the free webinar coming up November 7th, which is this Thursday, with the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. Uh, Dr. Dharma, the founder, will be on along with actress and health uh, health activist um, Muriel Hemingway and myself. It'll be 90 minutes. It's free. Um, they've actually had to expand how many people they can hold because we've got so many people signed up for this thing. It's going to be a fabulous, I think, really informative webinar. And it's celebrating 20 years that they have been in the forefront of prevention. And so... Um, Again, I would I would encourage you to go ahead and sign up, and you can either go to the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation homepage, or you can just uh, scroll down the blog and you'll find information about that, or you can go to our homepage on our website and find information there as well. Again, if you're just tuning in and looking for an Alzheimer's Association in your community, I suggest you go to Alzheimer's Disease International. They are the association of all associations around the world. You'll also find the latest statistics and resources listed there. Um, and don't forget about the Lewy Body Association, the front Frontal Temporal Lobe, and the National Aphasia Association. Those are all different types of dementia um, associations that can support you. And if you're a business or community and want to get behind the Purple Angel Project, which is the new symbol for uh, for the globe for dementia, um, reach out to me. I would be more than glad to to assist you with that. And the last one I'm going to mention is the um, Alzheimer's Studies Group, which has a um, has a trial on with the Tau trial that you can sign up for. And, um, you know, you can go there by just going to alzheimerstudies.com. And, and, oops, i got to sneak in one more. And, of course, have to thank uh, Share Care and Dr. Oz and Jeff Arnold for developing such a wonderful resource online for health and wellness. If you have not checked out 
share care, please, uh, please go and do that. Um, I think you'll be extremely impressed. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest who is, um, how do I describe Kathy? She is another person who I have not met personally, but I have uh, talked to over the years, feel like she is just a kindred spirit and a kind, kind soul doing miraculous things um, with her life. And Kathy Borey has degrees in nursing, public health, and law. But nothing prepared her for the seven years she spent caring for her mother. Along this difficult but unexpectedly fascinating journey, she discovered that recording conversations with her mother, writing a book, and learning ballroom dance were ways to tell both her mother and her mother's story. Her lyrical memoir, the Long Hello was launched at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City in 2010. And experts have been uh, have shortlisted this three times in the CBC Liter- Literary Awards. Her memoir is being adapted for stage by Kathy and Vancouver Award-winning director playwright James Fagan Tate. Currently, Kathy performs the text internationally, and um, she's also available as a solo artist uh, concert, and the concerts are accompanied by an actor and a cellist. Kathy is the author of another book called Looking Into Your Voice as well. Let's find out more of why Kathy feels um, out of memory loss comes the unforgettable. And I just think that that's just a beautiful way to phrase things. Out of memory loss comes the unforgettable. Welcome, Kathy. How are you doing? Good. Oh, hi, Lori, and hello also to Sherry. You know, I know we haven't met, but I think we've sort of met in another dimension, perhaps a spiritual dimension, because I feel I know you so well. <laughs> I, I, think well, I right. feel the same. <laughs> so oh, I was reading through all of your information, Kathy. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Oh, thank you, and I'm sorry I have a bit of a cold. I'd like everybody to think I've just got a sexy voice, but it really I've got a cold. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let's go with the sexy. That's right. That's right. We won't we won't visualize the sniffles and the Kleenex as you're no. talking. Well, thank you. I'm so pleased to be part of this what this uh, group today. It's such a great uh, culture change group, and I, I know Dr. Daniel Potts and Ellen Potts and all the wonderful work that I've been a little tiny bit involved in with their memory memory preservation project. But it's just an honor to to listen to the other speakers. Thank you so much for involving me. Well, Kathy, can you tell us, you know, where this phrase came, out of memory loss comes the unforgettable? Well, it, it is a great line. I wish I'd thought it up. I'm plagiarizing. Dr. John Killick from uh, the United Kingdom was one of my cover blurbs on my small book, uh, which is a book of conversations called Looking Into Your Voice. And he, he wrote the front cover blurb for that. And I thought, wow, could you have a better phrase? Could you have a more positive anti-stigma phrase? Out of memory loss comes the unforgettable. And I think that what that represents for me, and and I'm sure the other people who are part of this sort of anti-stigma culture change in in Alzheimer's and dementia, is that 
we think that there's nothing going on and it's a dead end and people are fading out at the long goodbye, the endless forgetting, such negative terms. But in fact, if one really listens and stays present, uh, there are unforgettable beauties, unforgettable insights to be gained from paying attention uh, and, and not giving up on people with dementia. You know, it's the same sort of thing that happened, the stigma with, with well, what I really think it is also is a stigma against aging in, at all. Um, but but it now, of course, it's much worse because of the Alzheimer's and, and, and dementia, the high prevalence of that. But uh, the whole idea is not to step aside from people who have this experience, but to fully engage with them. I agree. I I totally, totally agree. Now, you know, Kathy, one of the things that I just so admire about you is your willingness to be so honest and so vulnerable in your memoirs. It, it It's just it just it strikes a chord i think with i i have to imagine with anybody who who reads your writing um can you tell us was it difficult for you to write write this kind of book oh it's that's a neat question you know something Lori? i was so lucky because i got accepted into a writer's studio here in vancouver and so we we went to classes every day and learned many things but when we did our writing it you know all we paid attention to was the words the language how it was placed on the page nobody ever commented on the sort of vulnerable aspects and the whole idea was to write honestly because nobody wants to read anything where they feel there isn't being given a very very clear picture and that's why I set the book, which was really anchored in the Alzheimer's years, but involved a whole bunch more of our family stories to put it all in context. But it really wasn't until it was published and people came up to me and said, oh, my goodness, how could you, how could you be so honest? And I, I'd sort of forgotten that I had been. So it wasn't hard to write it because, of course, I'd already lived it. And then afterwards I thought, oh, goodness me. Did I really put that on the page? But, you know, that's what people want. They want to hear the truth. And so do I, as a, as a reader. I want to, I want to hear the truth and the, whole, and the whole truth, the good and the bad and the ugly and the beautiful. So it wasn't as hard as one would think. So I, I echo what Lori said. I think that there's such courage in writing so openly and, and really kind of raw, you know, emotion. But that is what helps motivate us to either change or embrace or understand or I'm sure so many people who have read your book said, Oh my gosh, I felt that way too or I can see I can see that as part of my experience. You know, Kathy, I was just really fascinated. You talk about so many different topics in the book, but the one about the ballroom dance lessons you took, I've written a lot about music therapy with dementia patients and seeing how much the arts, whether it's the dance or music, can move us and help us. So how did that impact you? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, it was really um, very beneficial to me as a caregiver. And because my mom was so musical, she, she would get to watch the videos and, you know, correct me. Oh, you know, dear, that your little turn there was a little bit too fast or a little long time. <laughs> <laughs> of course, she was always right. But the main thing I think that I learned from ballroom dancing was, and, and it's sort of a, a metaphor, but I learned how to follow. 
instead of lead. And, you know, I'm an alpha dog. I love to lead. <laughs> and um, I had to learn um, that there was great power in following. It's not subservient. And great peace and sort of almost a meditative state to follow and not to lead. And I I. I'm pretty sure that I was able to apply that to caring for my mom so that the whole idea in caregiving became for me, which was very difficult and uh, often I didn't succeed at this, but many times I did, was to follow my mom wherever she was going and not to prejudge that or try to bring her back to where I wanted her to be because it was easier for me. So the whole idea is, I, you know, I'm going to stay with you, I'm going to follow you, whoever you become and wherever you go. And so the dancing became a metaphor. It was also, of course, a great release for me physically, mentally, spiritually, and intellectually to be able to go and move to music on the floor, which is, of course, very therapeutic and very, very uh, pleasurable. But the bottom line is I think I got better at following where my mom was going. Well, and I love I love this example of you as a caregiver really finding outlet for yourself and and in such a wonderful way. And I love the whole, you know, the whole thing about you know applying that then to your caregiving. I think sometimes we get so focused and involved in our caregiving, you have to step out of it almost sometimes to see it in perspective. Was it hard for you to pull yourself out and and be able to go and do something for yourself like the the dance lessons? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll just be terribly honest. I was really ter- uh, really bad at, um, at, at distance, not distancing myself, but, you know, taking time to do things for me. I just, oh, I was terrible at it. I just wanted to be with her all the time. I felt guilty. I felt uh, a, a huge sense of duty and of, and of love. But, you know, I, I, the dance t- to me was, you know, it was exercise. I was learning something new, and I, I didn't feel guilty doing it. I, I felt a real dissonance when I went to the dance studio. I wasn't able to really share my story with anyone. It just made no sense, and it took me, it would take me a few minutes to really go from the world of caregiving to the world of dance. But once I got into it, then you sink into it like you might into singing or into art. Um, or even to a sport or something. And so once I got there and shut down my noisy mind, then then I was able to immerse myself entirely. Wonderful. I also drank a lot of red wine. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I mean, I have to put that on the floor. Well, which is which is actually has a health benefit, right? So yes, we can yes, I, put that out there. <laughs> My antioxidant fix. <laughs> Absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Now, Kathy, no. you know you you really learn to meet your mother in her own little reality, her world, and let her lead the conversation. Um, one, was that difficult for you to take on that approach, and, and, and why, why did you decide to try that? Well, I realized um, that my reactions to her changing mind uh, weren't working. So, for example, we'd go by a, um, a drugstore that had been there many years, and she'd say, oh, look at that lovely new store. And when this was earlier on, and I would say, oh, that's not new, thinking I had to reorient her. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, I saw the 
dismay on her face and the embarrassment. I thought, what am I doing? Is it so hard to say? Well, Mom, that yeah, that's a new store. What a good eye you have. That looks great. We should go there. So really, I realized how how you know toxic it was to go up against her reality. And so I tried. I mean, I wasn't always successful uh, because in human nature, we want to make everything just the way it was. And so I realized that when I, you know, basically shut up and let her take the lead, things went much better. So it it wasn't hard except for my own ego. When I could get over my own ego, it was really quite fun. And that's why I ended up taping her conversations because the things she said were just insightful and unexpected and funny and, and uh, poetic. So, you know, I felt she had something to say that was worth listening to. And that when I started to go down that road, things got a lot easier. You know, it's amazing when you said to let go of your own ego. I know that for me, that was that wasn't an easy thing for me to do. That wasn't a normal thing because I, I, you know, I always thought I was this really compassionate person and I didn't really think that I was that big of a control freak. Um, but I really, I, you know, looking back, it was like, woo-wee, <laughs> you know, who is this woman? And it was really driving her. And, I, you know, I always thought, I always, I always referred to myself as organized, and, you know, <laughs> instead of kind of this, this perfectionist and when I was able to let go of my ego I was shocked at what was before me that I was missing just it's a really good point Uh, yeah it's a beautiful point you make and you know really it's when you finally get to that place even though it's a little bit of an up and down experience it's so peaceful and restful just to stop who you're, who you're being, and just totally let that person be who they want, and it, it's really actually quite beautiful experience. It's very zen-like, I think, and very, very zen-like. You just accept, mm-hmm. and you're in that moment, and but you do it moment by moment because you can't. You know, sometimes you just don't have the strength to do it, and you slip. But it, it's a much better way to go, at least to try to go that way. Exactly. Now, Kathy, I want to be respectful of your time because um, we've only got a minute left, and we can we can have you on a little bit longer to kind of finish a couple other questions if you have time. But if you need to scoop, scoot, I want to make sure that we wrap you up and and don't cause you to be late to your next. No, I've got a little extra time. I'm I'm enjoying myself. Don't make me hang up, Lori. <laughs> okay. Okay. Sherry, well, do you want I to ask a thinking, question at her? Yeah, you know, you said something, Kathy, that really resonated with me early on when we started talking. You said, you know, don't give up on people. And I think I've, I've talked to so many caregivers like yourself, and whether it's Alzheimer's disease or autism, you know, it's amazing to me how friends and even sometimes family members can just turn away or fall away because they can't deal, they can't cope. And so, you know, you write and talk about family and friends who started to write your mother off. You know, tell me tell me about this and how did you navigate through that? Well, I've, I've thought about that quite a bit then and now and since, I mean. And I, I think really it's a very common phenomenon for people to distance themselves with anything that makes them uncomfortable. So if people have, say, MS or some sort of chronic disease, it's not uncommon for the friendship circle just to diminish and diminish and diminish and practically nobody left at the end. I think it's because they're full of fear, they find it depressing, they don't know what to say. Those are things that are understandable, but they're very egocentric. 
So it takes courage to, you know, to stay on board. But I think that uh, that's our human duty to stay on board. And when we do, we find that there's much to be enriched. So you can't force people to do it. I couldn't force people to do it. I was very disappointed that when they didn't. Uh, but I understand it. Uh, but I don't accept it. It's not. It's not good behavior. It's not good human kindness behavior. It's very common. Did, very. Did you find? I talked to a couple of caregivers who said, you know, once I started to really explain my loved one's disease or disorder, and not just tell them, oh, my son has autism, or oh, my mom has Alzheimer's, but once I really started to get into what it meant and what my life was like. Some of those people then started to turn that corner and become more empathetic. Did you did you find that? Gee, maybe I didn't do such a good job at explaining <laughs> it. <laughs> um, well, no, not really. I um, yeah. Oh gosh, you know, both Mum and, and I, she was and I am quite a private person, so I wasn't about to just sort of get into that conversation with just anybody. And there were a few people who you know stepped to the plate, but. Uh, jeez, I have to say, not very many, and um, I I just feel that they didn't couldn't cope with it. I mean, I even had one person say, I, "I'm sorry, I I don't visit anymore. I I can't do it." But I found I could at least accept the honesty of that. Right. But the other people, the other you're missing out when you don't step to the plate for pe- with people who are suffering, no matter what they're suffering from. Right, right. So who who was there for you? Who who was kind of either your rock or your vault or what helped you? Well, my uh, my dance was actually my my rock, one of my mm-hmm. main rocks. And another thing I did that was just so helpful is I went to see a, um, a counselor who was actually an academic uh, professor who studied uh, midlife children looking after their elderly parents. That was her her whole research uh, emphasis for many many years, and she also was a family therapist. So. I went to her with the you know very express purpose of getting homework every few weeks to figure out how I could better deal with this and because she had studied this really really well and knew what she was talking about that was extremely helpful because there was nothing I couldn't say and mm-hmm. I think that was that was a really good idea and I was really fortunate to have found her but mostly it was a lonely little pattern because we didn't, you know, there was just the two of us. There was no other family. That can be a, right. a benefit. That can go, that can be a benefit and a disadvantage. It's just like having five siblings can be a benefit or a disadvantage. Right, right. But I do I do think, again, the great message is that you found some outlets. You found a way to help learn more about how to cope through the, the professional help that you got through the professor, but also your outlet with dance. I I just encourage caregivers who are listening, don't don't isolate yourself. Find something like Kathy did. It's just so important. Mm-hmm, I agree, and it could be something as simple as joining a volleyball team or a walking club. It's an hour or something, but just get out and move. I, I think you should move. Phys- I think the physical exercise is very very important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Click in those endorphins. Right. (laughs) (laughs) However you can. (laughs) Um, Kathy, in wrapping up, can you tell people how how this book can help them um, deal with with dementia? Sure. The, the, The only way I really know that is by my readership or the people that come to my concerts giving me uh, feedback, and that is that for those who have gone through the experience, 
they feel valid, well, validated is an odd word, but they feel they've been understood. And those about to go through it or going through it uh, tell me that really it provides almost a compass for navigating uh, these tricky waters. So that, that's the kind of feedback I normally get. Okay. And how do they, how do they reach you, Kathy? How do they I think the easiest them? way, Lori, is off my website, which is kathybory.com, C-A-T-H-I-E, B-O-R-R-I-E dot com. And that you can also contact me on that site and you can watch if you like if you're a dog lover, it's a very good idea to go to my YouTube channel. And I'm not going to give anything <laughs> else away. <laughs> I love that teaser. <laughs> oh, it's very fun. <laughs> and also the other thing, Laura, I'd like people to know is that I do concerts based on the text. I do them all over the world. First launched at MoMA in New York City, but sometimes I do them solo. I recently did one solo, and other times I do it accompanied by musicians and even a gospel choir. So that's, you know, entertainment, when you think about it, going to a play or a film really can change how you feel about something. And that's why we're also adapting it for stage, trying to reach a larger audience with a, uh, an honest but hopeful message. Wonderful. Well, Kathy, thank you for all you do and all you are continuing to do. Um, I need to pull in our next guest here, which is very interesting because uh, Dr. Daniel Potts and Ellen are with us, and I know that you worked on a project with them as well, so this is just kind of apropos to to have this uh, flow so smoothly. Do you want to speak to a little bit about what you did with them? And then I'll go well, ahead and I, I think them. they're best able to do that, but I, did, I was a part of a, very, of, of a film that they were doing regarding um, you know, the, the honoring of people with dementia. And so I'll, I'm going to stop talking, which is not easy for me to do, so that you can get on to those lovely people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kathy, and I look forward to having you back on the show again. Oh, you too. Bless all of you. Thank you so much. Love you very much. Thanks, Bye-bye. Kathy. Bye. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our next guest, Dr. Daniel Potts, um, who is a noted advocate, author, educator, and champion of dementia patients and caregivers. He is the founder and president of the Cognitive Dynamics Foundation, and um, he's a neurologist at the Tuscaloosa Veterans uh, uh, Administrative Medical Center and the associate clinic professor at the College Community Health Science, Health Science of the University of Alabama. He also was um, selected as a 2008 Donald M. I hope I'm not going to uh, cremate this name too much, Palachutzi Advocate of the Year by the American Academy of Neurology. Dr. Potts seeks to improve the quality of life for persons with dementia and their caregivers primarily through innovative approaches, incorporating expressive arts and person-centered care. Um, he also has experienced this disease through the eyes of his father, and um, his wife, Ellen Potts, uh, Woodward Potts, is also with us, and she is a blogger for mariashriver.com. Together, they published a pocket guide for the Alzheimer's caregiver, and they also have other books, um, which include The Turning Time, The Broken Jar, Soul Fire, End of the Day, 
versus of recovery and um, neurology uh, for the boards. Um, these two are really quite pioneers in terms of uh, in terms of their work with dementia. So I want to welcome both Dr. Daniel Potts and Ellen. How are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Well, great. Daniel, are you with us? We'll see if we've got him with us. Dr. Potts, are you with us? He's showing up, and I'm kind of hearing something, but he's not connecting. So, Ellen, you might be running the show here. We'll have to see how it goes. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, it looked like he had gotten bumped off the show. You know what? Let me try another. It looks like he's showing up here twice. Nope, no, he just dropped off. Let me try one other thing here. Nope, he's just on here once now again. So, um, Daniel, if you're listening, if you want to hang up and call back in, we'll see if we can get a better connection with you because for whatever reason, we're not able to hear you right now. Um Ellen, I want to, um, I think what I'm going to also do is pull in uh, another guest of ours today who is working on a project with you, Alan uh, Brandano um, of The Voice. Al Brandano, yes. Yes, of The Voice Library. And um, I'm going to let you go ahead and maybe kind of cue him up a little bit and we'll see, we'll see what happens there. Al, are you with us? Yes, I am. How are you? Good, good, good. And Daniel, I'm going to see if you're here. Hello, Lori and Siri. I'm here. Can okay, you hear me? we got you this time. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so we're doing Thank good. Thank you so much. I've had some technical difficulty on the phone here. I've been listening on the phone for about 30 minutes, but somehow I got disconnected right before I, right before I punched in. So <laughs> sorry about that. Oh, no, not not a problem, not a problem. Daniel, can you can you tell us a little bit about your your project with with Al and the Voice Library? And um I didn't really do much of an introduction for him. So if you want to go ahead and and um give people a little bit of background, that would be great. Absolutely. First of all, let me just say how honored we are to be back on your show and how much we appreciate what you all do to raise awareness and Kathy talked about culture change, and that's exactly what you promote. And uh, I, I've, I agree with everything everybody said today. It is just so wonderful to hear uh, the kind of caregiving advice that you all give. Um, let me tell you just a little bit about what uh, what we've been fortunate enough to work with Al and LaVanda Wagenheim on, who I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, you know, we because of what happened to Dad, um, Dad had Alzheimer's disease, Lester Potts, and became an artist in the throes of Alzheimer's disease, having never painted before. So as we walked the course of uh, Dad's seven years with Alzheimer's disease, with my mother, of course, who was the primary caregiver, we were given hope and inspiration out of the life of the very one that was afflicted. And so that, that has become uh, uh, really an inspirer and motivator of us to listen, like Kathy said, a different way, because individuals who are afflicted with Alzheimer's have stories to tell, as we all know, and they can still tell them if we'll listen in the right way. So somebody offered Dad a paintbrush, realizing that he couldn't use a hammer and nail anymore, and lo and behold, he painted his life story for us in watercolor art over about four years. 
And so we, we were so inspired by this that it literally changed the course of our lives. Uh, um, and and we, we very much believe in uh, storytelling and the, um, the importance of that in Alzheimer's care, not only for caregivers but for persons with the disease and for their loved ones. So we had the opportunity to get connected with Al Brandano of the Voice Library um, um, a couple of years back and have just been really taken with what Al's organization does. The Voice Library preserves audio memories uh, of, of really anybody who, um, who would like to preserve them, and they create an online library for folks so that they'll always have access to those memories. And um, LaVanda Wagenheim, who is uh, the International Baccalaureate uh, Coordinator here for the Tuscaloosa Magnet Middle School here in Tuscaloosa, and also a member of our board at Cognitive Dynamics, is a wonderful educator who has also been touched by this disease and who wanted to make a difference. So we all teamed up, and LaVanda uh, wrote a curriculum, which is Common Core Aligned, meeting the Common Core uh, national uh, requirements for it, uh, education initiatives. And this is a curriculum that combines memoir life story preservation with Alzheimer's awareness for middle school students. And this was really Al, Brando, Al Brandano's idea, and uh, we unveiled the curriculum last year in Tuscaloosa, and it went over very, very well. And we're honored to be able to try to offer this uh, nationally. Uh, we, feel like it's, uh, we feel like it's unique, and, and it not only raises Alzheimer's awareness, but it also preserve stories, and it promotes intergenerational relationships, we think. We, we, we've all got to honor each other's stories, and we feel like that makes life uh, a lot more interesting and beautiful. So that's kind of a summary of where we are with Let Me Be Your Memory. Okay, wonderful. Al, I'm going to go ahead and, and pull you in and see if there's anything else that you kind of want to add to what, what uh, Daniel was just talking about. Uh, I think with Dr. Potts is one of the exciting parts about working with Dr. Potts and Lavanda and, and our whole crew is that, you know, on the pioneering end, we believe, and we've had this discussion at length, that for Alzheimer's awareness, we need to really do something different. You know, everyone has pink on. You can't go anywhere, watch football, baseball. Everyone has pink on. You know, why not purple? And in order to do that, we have to think outside the box, maybe really far outside the box to make that happen. And and the way we're doing it is, I think, the most natural and human way. It's interesting, when we started the Voice Library, you know, we're the first really innovator, innovators that allow people to access and really change the paradigm from accessing the stories anytime, place in the world just by a simple phone call and, uh, and our online access. So we've opened it up so that you can be driving in your car right now, dial your 800 number, put in your family passcode, and bingo, you get to hear grandma, grandpa, those fishing stories, maybe your daughter reading Goodnight Moon, now she's 25 years old. All those things are there and now available to you, never happened before. And to be able to work with Dr. Potts and Lavender on something like this was just a natural for us. And I think, you know, this type program put into schools and having the ability to be able for any school in the country now to contact us, uh, and I think Dr. Potts will talk a little bit more about that through the Rocket Hub uh, program that we're doing right now. Um, any school in the country, any organization in the country now can have just what we duplicated 
uh, you know, at Levanda School in Tuscaloosa, anywhere in the world now. So we have the ability to make Alzheimer's and make the understanding and the story of it and the passion of it and the hardships and the caregivers and everything that goes with it in a memoir project that's really simple and easy for students to understand. It's not, we're not pushing on that scary end where someone's saying you're going to lose your grandmother and lose your grandfather, your aunt or uncle or brother. What we're saying is this is a memoir program that softly introduces and teaches people about Alzheimer's in the very end. And I think the way the whole program came together is just amazing. I think it sounds absolutely fantastic, and I don't think we have enough of this kind of stuff going on. I don't know if you're familiar with the Jiminy Wicket program with James Creasy, but he plays croquet intergenerational, and the kids just have a blast with this and and so do the people with dementia i mean it's just such a beautiful thing and then they go off and they start talking and sharing and telling stories and you know i think it really is going to be our younger generation that helps us break down the barriers and get this disease out of the closet and into the living rooms um, so that we can have conversations without fear so i i thank you guys all for for the work that you're doing well, and you I, know, I one of the more interesting. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> interesting things for us, and, and just recently unlocked. It really became an emotional experience for me. Was to watch, or not watch, but to listen to. We we working with some caregivers. They were this gentleman happened to be uh, a World War II vet and had been in later stage of dementia, but he knew. Uh, he remembered exactly that time in his life. Uh, and he knew what it smelled like, tasted like. He knew everything about that stage in his life. And his grandchildren, were everyone kind of kind of shied away from him when they came to family parties and everything. And it's not until the time his wife and the caregiver got together and they captured that story of what he remembered in World War II. And then when his grandchildren heard him, they see him and feel him in a different way now. And that's the amazing part of unlock, unlocking stories and that woman came to me later in tears, and almost, quite frankly, I was too, basically saying, you know, my whole family sees my husband differently now because before he's not shunned, he's not locked in that corner anymore. They see him in a different light, and it was just an amazing and incredibly moving experience for me and for everybody there. Well, and I was going to say, I'm I'm so fascinated. You know, so often we turn to you know, educational programs and good information and good resources, but the 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 impact of using artistic ways to open up dialogues and open up understanding is fascinating to me. And I don't know who, which one of you wants to address that, but I'm just I'm just feeling like there's such strength in doing uh, and power in doing these types of programs. Can you talk a little bit about why why these things work so well? Well, Sherry, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to ask to bring Ellen in here with this because we have all experienced this as a family, and the power of art and creativity in any form, uh, especially when combined with reminiscence, uh, it, it just brings out the essence of that person. Um, I would just say this is Ellen. Uh, when I was in high school, I had an experience where I was told by my history teacher go find an older person and interview them. And, you know, being a teenager at the time, I rolled my eyes and, you know, did what I was told, but I wasn't very enthusiastic about it. And uh, the person that I chose to interview was 
uh, my Presbyterian pastor in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, this gentleman was older at the time, and my parents knew this. They were the ones who had suggested that I interview him. But he grew up in Holland and had been a member of the Dutch resistance against the Nazis during World War II. And here I had this mild-mannered Presbyterian pastor who was basically a spy, uh, you know, <laughs> during and, – and let me tell you, he and his wife would chime in also. Uh, she was also Dutch. And they told me stories that would curl my hair. And, and that really – you know, and, and were just so amazing that these people had, had lived such incredible lives – um, and yet here they were as a mild-mannered pastor and his wife in Huntsville. But, you know, that, that showed me early on the, the power of uh, learning history from the people who experienced it. Um, we had another situation where uh, we do a wonderful course at the University of Alabama called Art to Life, where um, students are paired with uh, people who have Alzheimer's disease in the community, the people who have Alzheimer's uh, given art therapy, and uh, the students, do, excuse me, document the life story of the people with Alzheimer's disease. Um, there was a, a one little lady that we hesitated to even include because we thought, well, maybe her disease process is too advanced. Um, but but when the students came to visit, she was very withdrawn still. But one of her daughters had the incredible idea of bringing out her wedding dress. This woman who was withdrawn and would answer people in monosyllables saw her wedding dress, and, and it was like she came alive. She suddenly started talking about her wedding day, how much she loved her husband, the problems fitting the dress, the, you know, the, the things that, you know, the cousin who arrived late, you know, all of the different things that she remembered about her wedding day that, you know, her daughters had never heard. And it was just such a beautiful experience to see how, you know, bringing out a familiar object, telling familiar stories can really help us connect with people who have Alzheimer's disease that, you know, they may not be able to hold a conversation about what they did today or, or you know, what they had for breakfast. They may not remember those things, but if you can, if you can find the keys to unlock the memories, um, you, the flow of stories can come forth, and it, it is just a beautiful thing to watch, and it gives families tools by which they can connect with their loved ones. Well, and I think so often we overlook the power of these types of storytelling and arts. You know, I have to tell you, obviously, I, you know, learned about the Holocaust in school and new details of World War II and, and all of that, but it wasn't until just really a few years ago, I was in Washington, D.C., I had a few extra hours, I went over to the Holocaust Museum, and which is, by the way, fascinating, one of the best museums I've ever, you know, uh, experienced, but the Shoah testimonies, and this sounds very similar to that, all of a sudden I saw this in a completely different light, and I really felt like the power of those stories made me fully understand, you know, what that was all about. Sherry, when I was a, when I was a little boy, I mean, what I enjoyed doing more than anything was sitting around the old people and listen to them tell stories. 
and I just mm-hmm. love to do that. And uh, nowadays, gosh, it's hard for me to get my daughters to listen to me get through one story at the dinner table, you know. And that, that's just that's just a product of I think the the, the world in which we live now. There's a disconnection, and uh, oral storytelling is not as important as it used to be. But we're we're trying to honor that and uh, teach some of these kids. The, the the best thing about it, I think, is the relationship building you see between the elders and the and the kids. And this is a disconnect we have today. And uh, LaVanda Wagenheim has done a great job, I think, in constructing this curriculum. Bless her heart, she's teaching today, and I think she's calling in. But uh, she she has built a beautiful curriculum that uh, really meets so many uh, uh, different criteria of, of, of the Common Core guidelines. And, and these kids are going to get the opportunity for hands-on work and for interviewing and writing and writing their own stories and, and learning about Alzheimer's disease in the process. You know, I'm going to jump in because we do have somebody on the line, and maybe this is her. So we have, uh, let's see, i got to get my computer to work here and connect. Um, we've got somebody from a 603 number. You are live on the air if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself from a 603 yes. number. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. And who who is with us? This is Ellen Westbrook, another Ellen. I I work with Al Brandano, and uh, you. I just wanted to add, you all have been saying so powerfully, um, storytelling brings connection and responsiveness, and by that it reduces fear. Uh, it's in our DNA. It's in the wiring of our gray matter and underlies how we make sense of the world. And and it's an eons-old tradition that, um, as Dr. Paz said, has has receded so in our modern lives, but I think we're seeing an explosion uh, in so many contexts now of of recognition of its importance and uh, so important for such emotional situations as coping with Alzheimer's. Um, because storytelling is talking, it's often conversation, like learning how to follow when when ballroom dancing. Um, it helps us learn how to respond to an immediate reality and, and helps us move together. And Wonderful. the Let Me Be Your Member project promotes that across generations wonderfully. Well, great. I appreciate you calling in today, Ellen. Thank you so much for sharing. We've also got a caller from a 205 number, and you are live on the air. 205 number, do you you want to join the conversation? I guess that would be me. Can you hear me? This is LaVanda. That's LaVanda. Wonderful. (laughs) You broke away. (laughs) I'm here. Um, I have been listening for a little while now. Um, I... um, wanted to talk about what we are actually doing with Let Me Be Your Memory in the next month. Um, our eighth grade language arts teacher who took my position when I left last November, uh, right when I was about to, to launch Let Me Be Your Memory, I was uh, named the IB coordinator. So I stepped out of the classroom, unfortunately, but I had been doing um, this project in a smaller shape and form for years prior. So um and Dr. Potts had already known about that because I had taught his daughter in class. So um, what we did was just expand the program to include the voice library. 
as part of um, the program, as part of the project. And I started to write the curriculum and started adding in all the parts that I knew would fit and work. Um, but anyway, our teacher, Ms. Parker, is about to start the eighth grade Let Me Be Your Memory project next week. And they're going to focus on um, a memoir of wartime. Um, if you know Night by Elie Wiesel, um, yeah. it, it's a Holocaust memoir. And uh, we'll be using that text, of course, in the program that we've developed. There are many texts to choose from. And then the students will be writing their own so-called war stories or stories of conflict. And they will also be interviewing their elders. And not necessarily having to do with war stories, but maybe a story of conflict in their lives. And uh, it seemed to work really well last year, and the students, are kind of they're familiar with the program because they had done it as seventh graders, but now the focus has shifted. So you can see how Let Me Be Your Memory really can include so many different themes, um, but the basics are there. Let's learn the genre of memoir. Let's talk about personal narrative and what are the elements. Let's let's write our own, and then let's go to the community. Let's go to our elders. Let's find out what their stories are. Let's preserve them while we can. And um, and make those connections because I think that's the most important uh, to me. That is the most important element of the entire project. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you know again. I think this is such a, a wonderful program that all of you are involved in. Um, as Dr. Potts said earlier on, Alzheimer's disease is really the next big crisis, if you will, that we face in America because of the longevity and the the prevalence and being able to help younger generations understand it better seems to me to be just a fascinating and wonderful way to help us cope and support our society through this. And uh, there's one more part that we have included this year, and that is to visit the Caring Days Adult Daycare with our choir students who are singing a beautiful three-part song having to do with memory, and we're going to sing it to the clients there at Caring Days and then participate in a Christmas art activity afterwards. So it really goes well with our community service component, which is a big part of the International Baccalaureate program, and uh, they will be getting community service hours and making those connections there too. So that is something that we're looking forward to November 19th to commemorate National Alzheimer's Month. Oh, wonderful. Well, I have to thank you all for joining us. We've only got about three minutes left on the show. Um, Ellen, anything else that you want to add? Oops, we may have lost her. Okay. <laughs> how about how about you, Daniel? Anything anything you well, would like to add here? Well, I, I would. I just again want to reiterate how much we thank uh, you and Sherry for having us on and for all of the work that you're doing. Uh, we're, we're believers, and y'all are too, that, that the more we hold hands and the more we connect uh, in our efforts, we're all each playing an important role here, and uh, the more we connect, the better. And uh, I just want to reiterate a, a, a thing or two that LaVanda said. You know, these individuals that have Alzheimer's disease have all lived rich life stories. They have experienced love. They have experienced loss. They've been heroes. They've been heroines. They need to be able to share that, and our world can't afford to lose one bit of that information. And so I think that 
the crisis that we have that you talk about, one of the one of the things about that is that we're losing memories. And we can be the memory preservers of those individuals, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity there. We do have a Rocket Hub site, which is a fundraising site for Let Me Be Your Memory. And actually the web address for that is www.rockethub, that's all one word, rockethub.com, and then a backslash 32008. Um, so www.rockethub.com backslash 32008, or you can go to Rocket Hub and type in Let Me Be Your Memory. Now we'll pull up our site. You can learn more about it, and we hope to be able to take this to, to our nation's schools. It's an honor. Well, it's it's an honor to have you all with us today. And, again, I, I thank you for all the work that you're doing. Um, Sherry, I thank you for co-hosting with me today. It was it was absolutely fabulous. And um, well, I, I do want it. And I do want to remind our audience here that we uh, have our next show next Tuesday, which will be on the Global Initiative of Change. And pretty much everybody that we are working with um, is looking at this big picture movement, which is, is so much fun. Um, the Dementia Chats, again, will be next Tuesday as well. That's November 12th already. And, again, if you have not signed up for the free 90-minute uh, webinar with the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, I would encourage you to do that. Dr. Dharma is the founder. He will be featured as well as the actress, um, actress and health activist Meryl Hemingway and myself. Um, you can find more information at uh, www.alzheimerspeaks. Until then, thank you all for being part of the show, and I look forward to uh, to talking to you all again next week. Bye now. Thanks so much, Lori. Thanks, Lori. Bye-bye. Yep. Thank you. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Way Showers who will help your journey a lot easier.